0: My name is uh, John Summers, and I'm uh, editor of the, the Baffler magazine, is sponsoring this discussion tonight. But the question is very simple, uh, but also broad-ranged. What's the matter with America? And what does technology have to do with it? That's the question, or perhaps our theme. It breaks down something like this. Once upon a time, rich societies, like the United States, believed in new technology as the gateway to the true and only heaven of progress. And prognostication was, like everything else, a growth field. Tonight, Peter Thiel and David Graeber come together to discourse on the surprising disappointments and ironies surrounding the course of our new technology and to spotlight the country's loss of faith in creating a new future fundamentally different from the present. Can anything new and different possibly come from the government and corporate bureaucracies with their stultifying organizational cultures? What role have computers played in the long stagnation of our culture? Can America survive the decline of vision among its leaders? These are some of the questions that we'll touch on. But since time is short, let's get right to the biggest question of all. Why are we here? What do a Silicon Valley investor and entrepreneur and an anarchist anthropologist know about this stuff that the rest of us don't? David Graber.
1: What happened to the second half of the 20th century? That is to say, if you're growing up in say 1900 and you're reading H.G. Wells and Jules Verne and that kind of thing, growing up at the turn of the century, and you're imagining what the world would be like 50 years later. Well, you basically got it right, you know, and you, there were flying machines and submarines and rockets and um, talking boxes and, you know, TV, radio, so forth and so on. You know, some didn't get the time machine, uh, but a lot of the basic gamut of inventions they expected to happen did in fact happen. Now, here's me growing up in the 60s, um, imagining, oh, my God, I'm going to be 39 years old when it's the year 2000, um, sort of imagining what the world is going to be like. And we all kind of knew what was going to happen, too. There was a similar list of stuff. And um, there were going to be you know, anti-gravity sleds and teleportation devices and Mars bases and robot androids that could, like, do chores for you and immortality drugs. And, you know, there was a basic standard list. And you know, I don't think any of us expected we'd get all of that stuff within our own lives. But I don't think it occurred to any of us that we wouldn't get any of them. And the thing that fascinated me is that I know that everybody who grew up there, you know, thought this stuff was going to happen. Well, If you were growing up at that time, it wasn't just fantasy. It was you know, authoritative voices. You go to the planetarium, you read National Geographic, you watch those TV science shows. Like, all your elders who were supposed to know about this stuff were assuring you this is what was going to happen. That we actually believed that these things were going to happen has been wiped away as an embarrassment in our memory. It comes back to haunt us in other forms. So I wanted to break the taboo in a certain way. I remember around 2000, this is another point where this really struck home. Um, I was waiting for all the people to talk about what we expected the world in 2000 was going to be like and how disappointed we were. Nobody said that. Everybody pretended we really were living in this world of unprecedented technological wonder. So okay the question for me became why. I don't think I have definitive answers but as I began researching it two things really jumped to the fore and one of them was the degree to which there was a self-conscious change of direction in investment in, in, in research and development? It was a kind of a right-wing, not right. I'm sorry, ruling class freakout. Um, was taken up more by the right, but I think to some degree by the established left as well. Uh, but it can be documented. People started saying, oh my god, what's gonna happen when robots replace workers? It was a reaction to the unrest of the 60s. There were a lot of people, Alvin Toffler really embodied this in a lot of his publications, Future Shock, but it was brewing for some time before. People saying, you know, all this unrest, imagine what it's gonna be like You know, when the entire working class is replaced by robots, are all gonna turn into hippies and dropouts, and um, it's gonna be chaos. In that format, there's this idea that technological change is happening too quickly. All this space age stuff is en- endangering the social order, that you know, the degree to which change happens, happens quicker and quicker and quicker. Um, so that it seemed logical that since the sort of speed at which people could travel doubles every seven years or so, I don't remember what exactly the number was, we should be in other galaxies quite soon. Um, in fact, the speed at which people can travel stopped exactly the year he wrote that book. And around that time, there was indeed a shift in the direction of investment, technological investment, away from all that sort of space-age stuff towards investment, essentially in information technology, in medical technology, and military technology. And that's where all the money's been ever since. You know, the first thought you have is, all right, if they've been pouring money into that stuff, we still don't have a cure for cancer. We still don't have the immortality drugs. I mean, we've got Ritalin and Prozac and all this stuff that, um, you know, is useful for social control, but the really good stuff we never got even there. And even military technology, you know, I mean, where's Klaatu? You know, where's the giant killer robot shooting death rays? You know, we know they've been working on that. Um, But even that stuff, they really haven't got, you know, they got these model airplanes that can blow people up, whoop-de-doo. Even there, you know, the things they have been pouring the resources into, we never got anywhere near what we thought we were going to have. Why is that? And the conclusion I finally came to is you can only understand this in terms of bureaucracy, but not just the bureaucratization of of research, because it had always been largely bureaucratized. In fact, Manhattan Project, uh, NASA were giant bureaucracies, which were incredibly productive of, of innovation but it was a shift in the nature of of bureaucracy that happened in the 70s um, and has accelerated ever since, which is essentially a corporatization, a certain type of corporatization of bureaucratization of research. It happens in universities, it happens in government, it happens in corporations themselves, which um, where the whole bureaucratic direction shifts away from uh, an emphasis on on production to more an orientation toward finance. The old bureaucracies, I mean, whatever you want to say about them, they were big and stifling in their own ways, they they actually could cultivate their eccentrics. I mean, if you look at the kind of people who were involved in the Manhattan Project, they were also almost all weirdos of one kind or another. Um, Even the people who set up NASA, Jack Parsons, the guy who set up the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, who actually made the, the rocket engines, was actually a Thelemite follower of a Leister Crowley who used to have ceremonial magic orgies in his house. In the 50s. Eventually, uh, it was like a lot of it apparently was organized by his wife's sister, the orgies, who then ran off with L. Ron Hubbard. Um, <laughs> causing him to become so extreme, he was kicked out of NASA and became a special effects guy and eventually blew himself up. But, you know, these are the kind of people who set up NASA, you know. Um, you can imagine people like that being employed by government bureaucracies nowadays. I find it hard to picture. Many Functional society, almost any society that's ever existed, has something to do with brilliant, imaginative, but extremely impractical people. We don't know what to do with them anymore. We just like they're all living in their mother's basements, saying weird things on the internet, and you can't tell which are crazy and which actually <laughs> have something to contribute. You know, you used to put them in academia, but now academia is all about self-marketing. Being in academia, I can see very easily what's happened um, in my own discipline, where you know any kind of new thinking is is, is really discourage uh, you know, social theory. You know, basically what we're doing is we're writing these kind of endless annotations on French theory of the 1970s, late 60s or maybe early 80s. I call it the classic rock phenomenon, you know. <laughs> and they're still like doing the intellectual equivalent of listening to Fleetwood Mac and Led Zeppelin and think they're cool. Um, but um, this kind of endless recycling um, is typical of disciplines which really seem to be opposed in principle to radically new paradigms and new thinking. If you want to ha- maximize the possibility, and I'll end with this, of unexpected breakthroughs, it's, it's pretty obvious, you know, what the best policy is. Um, you get a bunch of creative people, you give them the resources they need for a certain amount of time, you maybe let them hang out with each other, but basically you leave them alone. And, you know, most of them are going to end up not coming up with anything at all, but a few of them will probably come up with something that will even surprise themselves if you want to minimize the possibility of unexpected breakthroughs, take those same people and then tell them they're not going to get any resources at all unless they spend the majority of their time competing with one another to prove to you they already know what they're going to create. Well, that's the system we have. And it's incredibly effective in stifling any possibility of innovation. So I'll leave off at that and see what Peter has to say.
2: Um, well, there's there's a disturbing amount. I actually agree with David on here. I uh, was careful to wear a suit tonight so that I wouldn't get confused with him. But uh, I'm actually, a lot, you know, we have a tagline on our website at uh, Founders Fund. Uh, uh, they promised us flying cars, and all we got was 140 characters. And it's sort of, uh, and I, I do think we've had this tale of uh, two uh, two tracks in technology in the last 40 years, where there has been a very rapid progress in computers, internet. Um, the world of the world of bits, uh, and there's been much more limited progress in the world of uh, of atoms uh, flying cars, transportation, new forms of energy, um, new medicines, uh, all kinds of other things that would be very transformative for our society so strong uh, strong agreement that there's something about technology that has been relatively stagnant for for the last forty years and, um, I also actually agree with uh, David and this is harder to prove, but that there's sort of a sense of contingency that this, is, that this didn't have to be this way. You know, people, people say that, uh, you know, sort of the most common explanation that's given is that this was a law of nature. Sort of the, the easiest things were discovered first, and then it became harder to discover new things. The low-hanging fruit was picked. And I think the, the truth is more like the, the fruit was never low-hanging. It was always of intermediate height. And there were uh, various ways in which people uh, reached for it and were able to to get it, and uh, somehow that's not happening as much anymore. And so I think uh, things could have been quite different. And when I when I talk to uh, various people uh, in various tech and science areas, I always do get the sense that a lot more could be done. You know, we declared war on cancer in 1970. We thought we were going to win by the bicentennial by 1976. You know, uh, and I I think we could have made way more progress in the 44 years than we have made. Um, you know, one out of three people at age uh, 85 has dementia, uh, and we're not even thinking of declaring a war on Alzheimer's, which again is sort of an indication of how much lower our expectations for the future have been dialed down. Why did this happen? You know, we could spend um, all evening debating that, and then we could get a pizza and go in the park and spend a few more months debating it, and I, I suspect we wouldn't actually figure out why this happened. And I want, I want to suggest that a more important question to ask is really what should be done now. And, you know, one of the, in the, in the brochure, uh, David says, it was an excerpt from his article, where he said, you know, um, we're not gonna get uh, cities with domes on Mars until we, you know, change the entire economic system. And uh, this is sort of where, I think we start to disagree a little bit. I, I would say we, um, I would say in order to get cities with, uh, uh, um, on Mars with domes um, and to go to Mars, we need to just start working on going to Mars. And uh, and so the you know one of my colleagues from from PayPal Elon um, in 2002 he thought we should go to Mars he started talking to various various uh, rocket scientists various engineers about it he asked you know what, is it feasible what would you actually do you know he um, he's, he organized a company he gradually built it and you know they're still, it's still a ways off but but they are they're working on, on going there they have T-shirts that say Occupy Mars and. Um, <laughs> And uh, so I think, I think they probably plagiarized that. Um, but there's, there's, that, that's, that's sort of what I want to sort of underscore is is the sense of, uh, of, of how one uh, goes about doing these things. We can always sort of blame the bureaucracy, we can blame all these superstructures, but I think there is a, a surprising amount where we can um, just start uh, doing something. What does it mean to be an anarchist? It's uh, that you start acting as though you're already free. Um, and that's actually a sentiment I, I strongly agree with. And I think, it should be, not be just free to think and free to speak, or free to break things, but also free to build things, and that we are free to start uh, building the future uh, today. You know, when we started PayPal, uh, I, I said we weren't going to hire any lawyers for the first year because I knew they were just going to tell us we weren't allowed to do this. We just broke all the rules. The, the system got built, and then, sort of a year later, you ask for uh, you ask. You ask, for, uh, you ask for forgiveness you don't ask for permission and, um, and I think something like that you know is, is, is sort of a template that, that is working in, uh, in many of these cases the, the reason I have this preference for small startups instead of less, l- large mass movements is I think you have to convince a much smaller number of people, given that we're in this culture where there's a failure of the imagination where we no longer uh, you know um, have sort of a common way to talk about a uh, wildly different future. I think the way to get out of it is by convincing a small number of people that the future can look really different. I sort of think that if we say that you should only develop these technologies if they're developed collectively by everybody simultaneously, um, there is a weird way in which that becomes a reason not to do anything at all. And I I think that's, uh, that's sort of the the challenge that uh, that that one has with uh, you know with with these sort of with all these movements that 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 that, uh, that have thought of uh, changing our political system, whether it's Occupy Wall Street or the Tea Party, um, and you know I think a lot of the intuitions that things are broken, that we're near of stagnation and sclerosis, are right. But uh, but there was sort of a sense that uh, we're not going to get to Mars by having endless debates, and um, and I think that's. And I think we will get to Mars by actually working on um, on getting to Mars. And uh, I think you know I think there is an urgency to solving these problems. It's not uh, it's uh, if you if you if you take something like climate change seriously or any of any of these sorts of issues, uh, you know we need to be working on energy solutions today. Um, and and that's why I'm not um, I'm not willing to wait for some mass movement. I, I'm going to try to just convince a small number of people so we can get going right now. I'll, I'll leave it at that. Thank you.
0: Peter's suggestion that one could have or would should want a, a cultural revolution without a social revolution to a, accompany it. Is that a fair description of his, his 10 minutes, his 15 minutes? Well,
1: um, in a way what I thought was charming about the book is there is a call for a cultural revolution, a reimagining. Um, but I think that you're quite right in well, again, let's let's look at an overlap first. I think you're quite right in saying that you don't need to change people's minds first. That a large you no, know, I would go further, I'd say that you change people's minds by doing something. Um, I mean, what we found in our efforts at direct democracy, for example, was that, you know, you're not going to be able to convince people that a democratic society would be possible. You sit there and argue, that you could argue for days, you're not going to get anywhere. One reason for that is that people's everyday experience is sort of organized in such a way as to convince them that it isn't. I mean, almost nobody has any experience sitting down with any large number of people and coming to a collective decision in a, in, a, in a egalitarian way. And so you have to do it. Um, you just have to bring them into a situation where people do this sort of thing. And um, suddenly you set or, or you watch a thousand people make a decision together without a leadership structure and it kind of works. And um, if you have the right process and organization going. And suddenly people say, wait a minute. Well, I'd always assumed that was impossible. I never really thought about it. But, but you know, what other impossible things? that might actually be possible too. Your analysis, in your book about startups being about the right size, about sort of division of labor within them, you know, there's it, 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 actually a lot of overlap. We, we anarchists think about affinity groups. You need to have a relatively small group, it's around the same size. You need to have informal division of labor, of, uh, of, uh, em- which emphasizes complementarity. I mean, we're more into rotation and other techniques to make sure that like permanent leadership structures don't arise. But but in most essentials, it's 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 quite similar, and partly, too, because we actually have to do stuff, Um, and that's a system that has tended to work over time. Um, I think that the real question has more for me has more to do the larger structure. I mean, is it possible within a larger structure that seems to me to be to some degree designed to make sure that either it doesn't or that the sort of thing happens to a very limited degree? And this is one of the reasons why, actually, I think it's not something we can ignore entirely. Um, I think the shift that happened in the 70s towards sort of um, within the way capitalism itself worked was away from, Profits largely coming from production or even commerce at all, but um, through finance. And you know, finance in practice largely means other people's debts. It means various ways of, of rent extraction. And I like your analysis in the book. I think I think this is quite right that the capitalism and the market are not the same thing. Um, that when you have pure market situations, that does tend to stifle innovation. Um, it's not a the purely desirable thing that economists say, Um, you can't really have systematic profits under pure competition, I think I agree with that. Um, And that in a situation where you don't have rapid technological advance, that the alternative monopolies will tend to be forms of rent extraction. And what you're trying to do is to talk about forms of monopolies that wouldn't be forms uh, of rent extraction because they're actually based on Making the pie larger. Um, so far, so good. The question that I have is um, really one of cause and effect. Um, you know, at the moment, what we have is a large number of monopol- uh, monopolies that are in the business of rent extraction more than anything else. Um, and you know, there's certainly the most powerful corporations or financial institutions. That's basically what they do. Um, well, the question is, you know, is this overall culture of uh, which. Of, of stagnation. I mean, which it really is a culture which, in many ways, is a, a direct assault on on the human imagination, a product of those structures of power that those guys have created itself. I mean, I think, yeah. Well, and
0: there's it, so many yeah. different threads yeah. here. Okay. No I've mean, for I, a while. I you, yeah. No, I,
2: I would say that. Uh, I would say that. Uh, you know, there is like, I agree that you know the um, the. the eccentric university professor is a species that is going extinct fast and, um, know, and, yeah. it, and we have sort of a we have a, you have a Gresham's Law inside these universities at work where you know the bad currency is driving out the good and in effect where the people who are nimble in the art of writing for grants are displacing the idiosyncratic thinkers who are generally one suspects much less nimble at that sort of activity. Uh, and then, but then you know the, the, the and then so yes, there's a screwed up bureaucracy, and then the question is always you know where should we be applying our energies? And um, and I'm, I've been a big I, like yourself, I've been a big critic of uh, the university system, uh, but I um, and you know, I used to believe that the, the right way to do it was you know all sorts of lobbying for internal change or so all these different things you should do, and I concluded that it would be much more effective. Just to encourage talented people to leave, um, and that uh, that that was actually the easier thing to do. I spent a lot of time looking at it. You know, it was one of the, you know, I thought of you know starting a whole new university and doing everything right. Included, I couldn't even do that. I looked at people. I mean, the last hundred years, people have generally had a bad history of being, trying to do this, and um, and so I thought you know it was actually better just to get people to leave. And I and I think this is the the issue. And I you know I'd say yes, there are problems with all kinds of. Uh, structures in our society—they um, probably are uh, causing some problems, but it's—it's it's, it's not where I want to put the focus of uh, of what to what to change. Um, and and you know, yes, some of these structures exist and they slow us down in different ways, but we should uh, we should just start acting as though we were already free. And I think there are some things you absolutely can't do. You know, you probably can't get a tenured position at Yale. I couldn't get a tenured <laughs> position at Yale. Um, But uh, but there are lots of other things we can do. And instead of sort of beating our head against brick walls, we should try to go through the uh Go down the various paths that are that are actually still
1: available. I, again, speaking from the perspective of, of anti-authoritarian movements, this is always a big debate. You know, to what degree can you work inside existing institutions? To what degree do you just say the hell of it, and and create things on the side, or to what degree do you try to create things on the side? You know, within the nooks and crannies where, of, of the existing institutions where they're not looking, because most of us aren't in possession of a billion or two dollars. So, so you kind of have to do that. The central question is what are most people gonna do? Because, and the reason, and I think most people don't understand this about Occupy Wall Street, I mean, it wasn't like the Tea Party, an attempt to work through the political structure, it was exactly the opposite. We made a very determined decision quite early on that we were not going to run candidates, we were not gonna enter the political process because it was hopelessly corrupt. I mean, essentially, it's a system of organized bribery and a little more. There's a small percentage of the population that's essentially, Profiting off this system of extraction, of rent extraction, and they've set up this perfect circular system where they um, essentially legislate the laws, bribe politicians to put them into place to allow them to extract more rents, and um, pass off the cut to the politicians. I mean, to some degree, it's all institutionalized. When a large corporation is caught doing fraud, um, they don't. They don't even have to plead guilty. They just sort of sign this agreement saying, okay, sorry, you got us. We're not going to admit fault, but we'll give you money. And the money's always less than they made on the fraud. So basically the government's saying, you know, like, it's okay as long as we get our cut. Um, <laughs> look look, look, I, I, I don't I don't think yeah. there's that I don't think there's
2: quite that much intentionality. I, mean, I, I have sort of a both a less malign and more dysfunctional view of the system. I think there's no conspiracy. I think there's there's you know, it's it, I, I I don't think there was a conspiracy to stop scientists from from actually working. I think it just sort no, of No, no, but there's just people who make
1: actual decisions. I mean, you know, a like conspiracy implies it's a secret cabal. It's pretty public. They sit around and say, how much are we going to allocate for this? How much are we going to allocate but, for that? But I think I think the <laughs> but I I think that, look, the
2: the 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 place where we where I think we, we end up disagreeing on yeah. some mm-hmm. level is is um, I always get the sense that what your solution always is a larger thing mm-hmm. that somehow ultimately at the end of the day will require more structure, you know, more uh more bureaucracy of one sort or another. And so uh and so you know, it's we, look, we're living okay, in an advanced we're living in an advanced technological society. <laughs> and so um, direct democracy does not actually work as a way to uh think about things on our sites. It's too complicated. You can't vote on everything. Um, you know, um, we have, you know, a plebiscite system uh that you have in California is widely seen as not having worked ter- oh, it's a terribly well, yeah, no, I mean, we're not and, for that. Yeah. And um, <laughs> and and you know, probably the parts that work the best are actually the parts that are the least democratic. They're sort of the like you know they sort of s- specific government agencies where people are well trained on like securities law or some some esoteric area, um, and um, and it's not very accountable. It's not very democratic. But that's sort of what you have to do in a complex uh, technological society. And uh, mm-hmm. and and I. And I think that that's that's what's always being underestimated either by Occupy Wall Street or the Tea Party. Uh, Our society is too complex um, for um, everyone to get to vote
1: on everything. Right. Well, I mean, we're not actually for everybody plebiscite systems. Plebiscite systems tend to be actually very undemocratic in effect and and, and there's a reason why dictators, for example, actually love plebiscites. We're talking about very much more complicated, fundamental structural reforms and how how things happen, which involve decentralization. This is something that people don't mostly understand. Um, One of the things about anarchist models that makes them so effective is that uh, you decentralize everything you possibly can and put it down to individual initiatives. So, initiative. so, so um, let me concede that there are things uh, about that I would like politically, mm-hmm. but I want to go back to the
2: technology okay. question. Right? Could you build? Could you build? Could you do the Manhattan Project? Could you build? Uh, could you do Apollo? Could you get someone to the moon in a radically decentralized chaotic
1: system, or do you need well, it's not coordination chaotic, and planning? It's radically decentralized? Uh, um, um, yes, you do need coordination and planning. Frankly, I don't think that that creating very large-scale but fundamentally democratic structures, historically, is that hard. I think it's really hard to create tiny structures that are democratic. You know, you can get very large structures that work that way and coordinate things. What you don't get so much are egalitarian families, you know, small-scale structures. That's what's actually much, much trickier. Um, I think that there's a lot of things that would have to be um, organized very, very differently. And I understand also that you wanna do some things now. And I, I, I also, I want to emphasize here very strongly that I, I totally agree on that. I, I mean, you know, if you can come up with an immortality drug, great. Go ahead, I, be <laughs> do a it. A dictator of a small company. If I'm yes. doing that. Uh, I, yeah, I know. I mean, I, I'm 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 totally totally rooting for you here. Um, if you can go you to know, Mars, I, I'm, this not, is good I'm not too. Aware of, I'm not <laughs> yes. I'm not aware of any sort of yeah. uh, um, tech
2: startup. Mm-hmm. Uh, research project that was organized in this radically democratic way that that really worked. You know, I think I think the things that work are are shockingly hierarchical in, in these things. They they, uh, they because they require leadership, they require coordination. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's we should be free to uh, join other ones, and so it's it's good if they're small and they don't encompass our whole society. Mm-hmm. But uh, but I, I I really don't think um, you know a startup is not it's never. And it's it's really far from a democracy. People don't get to vote Mm. on things. Uh, And there have been a lot of experiments with this in Silicon Valley. People have tried to Mm -hmm. start companies where they've been completely transparent. Uh, Normally, it breaks down when they're transparent on how much everybody gets paid. Um, (laughs) It's like uh, at about 50 people, people start killing each other over (laughs) over those sorts of things. Um, And certainly, uh, um, if you try to actually make it participatory on everything. Uh, the, it, you end up with internal debate, and, um, mm-hmm. and you don't actually get anything done. That's,
1: you know, and I think I think a lot of people would actually like to build companies like that. Part of the problem is we grow up being told in a democratic society, but, you know, none of us have any experience. There's plenty of places in the world where people are sort of trained from the ground up on how to do this, and it becomes much easier. So I don't think it's absolutely impossible to create these things. But I also think, and this is a problem I think both of us have, is that you know it remains true that. The Government is the major p- source of most basic research. Um, I think at the moment I just looked it up actually before coming here it's fifty six percent of basic research is government funding, but only sixteen percent is corporate. Um, the rest of it is um, universities and nonprofits so you know if you put the universities and nonprofits together well, you know not profit oriented institutions other than government are still doing almost twice as much um, basic research even the corporations are at this point. So it's, you know, corp- the startup is, is a nice model for certain things or certain amazing things that have been done but I don't think we have to assume that's the only possible model for where the breakthroughs are gonna come from because historically it hasn't been. Uh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm not. I'm not saying it's the only way to do things.
2: Uh, I, I'm, I'm very, um, I'm very much in favor of it. In part because I agree, there's a lot that's broken in our society, and so I think, um, and so that's why I think um, I think the the models we have to we have to work harder on are ones that work on a very small scale and where you don't need to convince as many people and where you don't need to start with as, as big a, a structural change. Um, but yes, I mean there are all sorts of things that um, I could imagine different ways they could uh, they could work. I. I don't. I cannot imagine a straightforward way of, of changing these, these systems from within, um, and uh, very hard to see how they change from without. And that's why mm. that's why you know it's like how do we get to Mars? You know, do we change the NASA administration funding thing? Really hard to do, but maybe you can you can start a, a company and, and gradually uh, gradually do
1: do, do yeah. something like that. Yeah, in this case, uh, in the case of Mars, uh. There's also a question of determination. I mean, NASA did pretty well to get to the moon. I mean, they did it surprisingly quickly, considering what they had at the time. Um, So there's nothing inherently faulty in the model. It's just there doesn't seem to be the political will. Uh, And we have to ask why that is. And we probably have somewhat different, but overlapping explanations of that. All right, I agree. It would be great to have Somebody working on these kind of breakthroughs, and I totally applaud the fact that people are doing it um, It's also the case that I want to see a society where everybody can and and I often say that the one thing that's not a scarce resource in the world is imaginative people with possible solutions to intractable problems. Um, There's probably nobody in the entire world that doesn't have some idea that we would never have thought of. And we're both pretty smart guys. Um, And the problem is that the overwhelming majority of those people go around every day being told to shut up. Um, how do you unleash that? I mean, that's my basic question, and that's why I'm interested in these broader political questions, because you know, if one could unleash that creativity really, um, then I think a lot of the things we think of as problems will fall, you know, these, these supposed dead ends of technological, social thinking that we've hit you know, would, would seem ridiculous. I mean, there's people out there who could probably come up with cold fusion. There's people out there that could probably come up with almost anything you can imagine. Um, right now, you know, they're sitting around trying to pay off their father's debt on the rice plantation and, and you know, spending all their time in a shoe factory, um, and, yeah. which is on low tech because it's more profitable to run it that way. Um, and that's, that's what I'm concerned of. How do we get those guys in on the game? Well,
2: I, you know, I, 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 look, I think, I think there are all these structural things, but I think people, um, you know, I, I do think there's always this sort of failure of the imagination. I was, I was on a super tracked career. Mm-hmm. I was, you know, went to, every, you know, it was, and it was law school. I worked at a, law firm in Manhattan for seven months and three days, and um, <laughs> and um, you know, and then I, enough. and then when I left, mm-hmm. you know, people down the hall, and it was really weird. Psychosocial dynamic, where on the outside, everybody wanted to go in, and on the inside, everybody wanted to leave, and people down the <laughs> hall told me that it was good to see that someone could escape from alcatraz and um, and it was no, actually, all you had to do was go out the front door and, and, I, and I know you'll say, well, it's harder for all sorts of different reasons, but actually no, all you had to do was go out the front door and so I, 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 I do want to always push back a little bit on how, um, how powerless um, you know. People really are, and you know, I, I'm, I'm annoyed why that people are not more creative, that they're not doing more in all sorts of contexts. But uh, but I think there are, you know, I think there are actually a lot of ways to do things, and that's and that's surely that's where we have to start. Since you're not going to start by, by um, you know, we're not going to start by changing uh, the the bureaucracy at NASA or at Yale University or anything <laughs> like that.
0: We've both been very polite. Um, thank you. Thank you. I mean, I actually um, respect
1: the, 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 the that, Yes. You, you do want to see a mortality drugs well, what's to invest in Great. Um, I want to live forever.
0: Is there a way in which, <laughs> or any ways in which your respective positions are working against each other? Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> do you have Do, do you have one? political <laughs> objectives that are separate from the? Utopian political or the utopian technological universe that you'd like to see? Um, I don't
2: believe that these political institutions can be changed. I don't think this is what one should do. I, I used to believe this a great deal. You know, if you held a gun to my head and said, you know, what are your political views on things, I'd say that I'm sort of uh, libertarian and this is sort of socially more liberal, fiscally more conservative, or something like that. But um, But, you know, temperamentally, I would describe myself much more as a political atheist. I do not believe that the existing Um, political orders divinely ordained or sacred or special and I don't believe there's any other order that uh, could replace it that would deserve that sort of um, that sort of um, deference
1: and um, and and I I find myself just not believing in it Mm. right I mean I which is why it's funny that we're seeing this as a debate because you know I've been part of a movement whose basic premise was we are not going to work through the political system. I mean, one thing I find in some of this stuff I've been doing economically about money and different uh, ways of thinking about money, um, moving past the sort of dead end neoliberal discourse about uh, currency, um, is that the political class is just useless. There's no point in talking to those guys. They're 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 basically bought and sold. They're 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 totally locked into a certain logic, whereby where, whereas. You know, even the technocrats, the guys who are kind of running the system, you know, they know the thing is broken, and they've got act- and, and, and they've got to actually put in place these policies these idiots come up with. I mean, they know they're based on entirely false premises. There's a huge break right now between the Bank of England and the entire political class in England. Where the Bank of England has said, well, actually, you know, uh, it's not like there's. Really, a lack of money. Um, you know, money is pre- created by making loans. Everything they say is wrong. We, we admit that now. The the, the the heterodox economists were right. Um, political class keeps carrying on as if this isn't the case. Um, so, 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 yeah. The political system itself is useless. Um, the question. So gonna, I I'll, I'll disagree with what the money part here. Yeah. I feel like yeah. you should disagree with something. Okay, a sure. Bit, there so. we go. Um, <laughs> yeah.
2: So, you know, I. We can have all sorts of debates about distribution or mm-hmm. about things like this, but I, okay. I actually do think that, um, that there is such a thing as an economy, that there is such a thing as scarcity, mm-hmm. that there's not enough necessarily to go around, and that therefore you have this very complicated way of, uh, of allocating things. And, uh, mm-hmm. and even though uh, it is true that we can, in theory, print infinite amounts of money, um, that's not a way of, that's not a way of solving the problem of scarcity, and I, th- I think actually by um, by by shifting the problem to the level of money, mm-hmm. um, you're making the same kind of shift from atoms to bits that you questioned earlier on. Where you know, I think of money as the, the perfect virtual good, mm-hmm. um, and um, and um, and but what it stands for are always real goods, and uh, and so when you print more money, you don't actually change uh, the underlying. Um, the underlying nature of the real goods. Um, and I think that's, that's something um, that I'd be much more focused on. The reason I think the technological mm-hmm. um, uh, stagnation is, is a problem is because of this problem of scarcity. And I think we need to, you know, you know, you have 7 billion people in the world, 6 billion people live in emerging market nations. And if they're going to have living standards, anything like the ones that people in the, uh, in the developed world enjoy, um, you need all sorts of new technologies to enable that uh, that to happen, and um, and the reality is that we have you know mm-hmm. we have a we have a certain amount of scarcity. You know, economics mm-hmm. was the science of how to economize. You know, in, so, in some ways, mm-hmm. and I think in some ways we shouldn't turn it into the science of how not to economize.
1: Oh, I'm not saying that people should just print money. I'm actually saying we should acknowledge how money actually works, which is just not the way the politicians say. This is this is a long conversation, but I think that what we can say is that there are certain types of economic policy which would unleash um, popular creativity, which is the other factor, because money isn't just measuring the value of stuff. It's also measuring the value of human actions, and it's also an SP a promise of future um, creativity. And, and that's the thing. What are the forms of money creation or uh, economics in general that will do that? Again, going back to the question of all those people with the ideas who, um, Basically are told to shut up all the time. Um, you know some people often criticize me for example for Sometimes putting in a good word for basic income Which is actually something that there are certain elements of the left and the right Can support I think of it as a, partly as an anti bureaucratic thing that actually reduce the size of government and not have all these bureaucrats looking over everybody's shoulder telling them like making them feel bad about themselves all the time um, if you simply Gave people a basic income support, um, it would mean that you're trusting them to decide um, what they, how they want to contribute to society. Um, I mean, ironically, a lot of the social welfare policies, which you think of as stifling, were also, you know, actually unleashed creativity in ways that we only know now that they're gone. I live, I live in in England. You know, it used to be since the 60s at least. Every five years, there'd be some amazing new band or musical trend that would just sweep the world uh, coming out of England, and that's all kind of stopped since Tony Blair, really. Um, and, and, and you know, I asked people there, well, what happened? You know, and everybody says the same thing: they got rid of the dole. You know, all those guys were on unemployment. Um, you know, they, and they were squatting too, so they got rid of squatting. Um, so you know, it used to be there'd be free housing, and you'd like have a base. You know, it wouldn't be much, but you'd have enough money that you could like get your friends together, with a guitar, and you know, maybe. One out of a thousand of them was John Lennon, but that's enough, you know? And now John Lennon is like lifting boxes in some, some department store's welfare conditionality. Um, so <laughs> you know, we're never gonna hear the new, the new trend. So I just think that, you know, that so techniques which just leave it up to people on the broad scale um, to, to, to innovate in their own ways would actually be much more effective in Creating the conditions where all these things both of us want to see would happen. And that's why I'm interested in, in, in those broader questions, because at the moment, I think the system we have is very much about, about tying people down. I mean, um, again, the debt situation. This is not something that just happened, this happened because of very calculated um, decisions. And you could see it very much, again, in the UK, where they did an uh, Tuition reform, where they said, "Okay, let's just raise tuition across the country and give everybody student loans, and then we'll be in debt." I mean, it's completely self-conscious. You know, this is not just something that just happened somehow. But the point of of that is to make sure that people start thinking of education not as a sort of exploring whatever they think might be interested in deciding for themselves where they can put their creativity, but rather, you know, do something which people who want to hire them in the relative immediate future will definitely want now. Um, mm-hmm. So Again, I, I, again, I, again the, okay. look. I, I think the student debt is a mm. is a huge
2: problem. Okay. Um, you know, certainly I would ascribe a, a lot of the problem to the runaway cost structures universities have. So it's, it's uh, so that's that's as much a problem as it in is in America. The, yeah. Uh, the, the the interest mm. compounding, um, and I I I do think the you know I think the intentionality there's not that much intentionality in the system. It's just there's well, not England enough in England. There
1: was. They just, there was a policy. Oh. They just said, okay, let's create student debt. <laughs>
2: Well, I, no, I think it was, there, was, there was a sense that there was some, some degree of scarcity on, yeah. on these things. You always have, you know, th- there is this problem of scarcity that, uh, you know, and this is why I think it's, um, we, we shouldn't obscure that. Now, you can, you can say they're distributional questions, mm-hmm. and maybe, you know, other right.
1: people should have paid for it or something, but... Uh, but that's why those larger questions, I don't think they can be ignored. And, and, and I think the final thing... I would say is that you can't really be a political agnostic in some sense. It's understandable that one wants to work within the system that exists, but you know, in so far as one does not end up self-consciously opposing that system in some way, or you know, calculating a way to at least act in a way that will not reinforce it, one tends to act in ways that do reinforce it and actually often make the problem worse. I mean you know what we have it seems to me since the 70s and this is corresponding to this technological stagnation has been an increasing emphasis on you know, the fusion of government power and financial power to the system of rent extraction. And again, maybe nobody sat down and planned it. Although you know they certainly talk things out with each other at the G8s and so forth. And um, there is a degree of, of self-conscious, um, at least, guidance of the direction of the whole thing. But um, I mean, well, that, you, lobbyists are essentially conspiring. That's what they do for a living. They just do it you know, publicly and officially. Um, and um, that is. Sort of locked in a a structure which is inherently inimical to innovation, um, and it's one can operate within that, and you know, there, and, and it's great that there are pockets of people within the system who are going to try to turn it against itself, um, but you're essentially pushing against a tide here. Well, it's it's again, <laughs> I, I
2: again, I. Um, you know, this is we're sort of cycling on this nonstop, but it's uh, I always kept mm-hmm. keep coming back to mm-hmm. uh, this is not the most constructive thing to be to, mm. be, to be working on. I think the, the more constructive things are to mm. figure out ways to do new things, and this is why you know this is why I think mm-hmm. you know even with all the excess hype in Silicon Valley, that's that's a little bit off. You know, even with uh, the ways in which I'd like innovation not just in bits mm-hmm. but also in atoms, mm-hmm. and there is some sense in which the financial era is over. That 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 it sort of has hit hit a wall, and it's you know it's and it's 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 going to be this long uh, deflationary uh, period. They got a huge bailout in 0809, but but it, you know the bonuses are slowly getting cut back, and the banks are slowly going to get shrunk and, and delevered. I think at this point it has uh, it has shifted uh, it has shifted to Silicon Valley in a in a very powerful way. And I, I think this is actually a very hopeful development because um, I think that, uh, I think this is, people have actually figured out this is where you can make a difference, this is where you can mm-hmm. actually, uh, this is where
1: you can actually change things. That's well, an interesting argument, I mean. Um, well it, it's a description yeah. of what's, what's, what's going on. In terms of the larger numbers though, I mean in terms of where the, I th- the I think profits are coming from, it's still largely in the financial sector. I would argue, I would argue it's, it's you have to think all oh, this. It's always about the
2: future. Where do Absolutely. people think they will come from in the future? Uh, where do people think careers will be made in the future? Where do they think um, they will have an opportunity to impact the world in the future? And um, and there there is a way in which um, you know uh, Google has really displaced Goldman Sachs in a in a you know. And again, you can say you don't like Google or something, but 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 it is. Um, there's a way in which we've had this this enormous shift uh, to uh, to Silicon Valley. There are problems in Silicon Valley. I think we're not doing enough. I'm always of the, you know, but um, but I think it is it is the place that is um, most about trying to do new things. Um, Certainly, that's to, true. Trying to that is most about trying to create new forms in our society, and uh, and so that is a very hope uh, very hopeful trend.
1: Well, I guess the question. I mean, I, and, and you wanted something adversarial, so so I'll throw this out. Um, <laughs> I guess the question is got to be: um, oh, Is Silicon Valley actually posing an alternative to that larger structure, where you have a fusion of financial and sort of security? No, not networks? not really. No. But 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 I, I, don't, no. I don't think. But, but but I think. But, but I think. But I, but I, but,
2: I, but I would argue that uh, that that's that's again. This is my political atheism, or maybe it's just I'm secretly working on behalf of the regime here, or something like this. But um, but that is. Um, uh, but I, th- I think the, I think the way that, uh, the way that you, uh, um, you know, the, the thought is we're not going to change the structures, we're not going to change those things and, and, and we will work on these, on, on, on other things, you know, you have companies like Airbnb and, you know, sort of a, mm-hmm. changing some of the, you know, urban regulations, you know, things like this do shift and, you know, the education system is going to probably shift at some point with, you know, online courses and, and, um, and so a lot of these things look like they're too small initially, but I, I do think they can they can grow into things that will really change our society. And this is always, you know, this is always why, as a as a uh, libertarian, I, I find myself working in technology rather than politics, because in politics you have to con- I find you have to convince too many people, and I can never mm-hmm. convince enough people to agree with me. And it's too hard.
0: We'll see about that tonight. <laughs> um, but uh, is you said you're maybe secretly you know working for the re- re- regime, but. Can you speak about Palantir? Yeah, that's where, that's where I was going. It's really with not that's so I mean. secret. It's, it's not really very secret, is it? I mean, you're you're, you're working with the CIA and the. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the U.S. Army and, um, and um, on J- JP Morgan and JP uh, Morgan. I mean, your political agnosticism hasn't prevented you from. Right, and that's
1: that's where I was actually sort of going with this. Is it's one thing to say, okay, we're doing something else, but uh, you know, we're not trying to challenge the structure. But there's another thing, sort of using those technologies to actively reinforce the very structure, which is ultimately stifling creativity. No, look, I, th-
2: I think we have, I think there are, I think there are all sorts of concrete problems that uh, that we need to, to solve. You know, SpaceX is working with, you know, it works with the uh, the U.S. military to help get financing to launch satellites and. Uh, and you know, on the on the palantir side, I I, I do think that there is, um, you know, I, I do think there were some very big big buildings that were blown up here in New York <laughs> City, um, and um, and as a um, you know as a uh, libertarian, I don't think we should have had the response we did to those buildings blowing up, but um, but uh, you did you know all the mass movements, all the consciousness raising in the world did not stop us from getting the Patriot Act. You know The ACLU is always good at talking about uh, civil rights. Once something bad happens, um, you never get uh, you know, the protections go out the window right away. And so I actually, I actually do think that there's something to be said for uh, trying to figure out some ways to, uh, to, to stop another attack, which will be used to uh, curtail civil liberties a lot more. A company like PayPal could not get started in the post-Patriot Act world. Because we would have been accused of money laundering in '99 to 2000, and so I, I do think uh, the, the, the fact there was no technology to stop terrorism in 2001 is what, uh, is what has led to uh, you know a, a far uh, far less libertarian world. Another reason, and yeah, that's why my that's my
1: th- my understanding of it. Right. I mean, another reason why 2001 happened is because all the intelligence resources were being brought to bear disproportionately on people like me. Um, <laughs> my friends, rather than the guys who are actually going to blow something up.
2: Look, if Snowden has revealed anything about the NSA, it is, it is how little technology there is, how incompetent it is. So you know, mm-hmm. if you have an intelligence agency where someone is downloading all the files mm-hmm. and it doesn't raise any suspicions whatsoever, I mean, this is much more like the Keystone Cops than Big Brother. And um, and so um, and so we we've, we've had a world where there's been not very much privacy, but not very much security either. And um, and I, I think that uh, um, and I think we could try to have more of both. Is, is
0: Palantir moving from Keystone Cops to Orwellian? Is is that the is no, that the idea? No, ideas? no, we, we
2: we get we get Orwellian because of the Keystone Cops because they know, they know they don't, they're incompetent. They have to always do more and more. So, um, so you, you just have to hoover up all the data in the whole world <laughs> because you have no idea what you're doing.
0: Uh, let's stop this portion of the program. Thank you very much. Uh,
3: Thanks <laughs> for questions. Yeah, I I just wanted to uh, ask both of you since you're in su- such great agreement to begin with. Um, I feel like what you're disc- the larger phenomenon you're describing is. the breakdown in creativity and the imagination, but also a failure to commit basic resources to research and development. And what you're describing historically actually, um, you know, I guess for you specifically, David, when you talk about, you know, how all the reveries of of the early 20th century gradually came to pass. there's, there's a very specific way that all came to pass, and it has to do with forces that I don't think either of you like, uh, which are government and ideology and the Cold War. <laughs> These were far and away the drivers for you know, the basic infrastructure of, of the computer revolution, as you say, military technology, things that, and, but more than that, things that actually succeed and that we use on a daily basis, like uh, interstate highway system, the GI Bill back when education sort of seemed to work. And all these forces were knitted together um, by an ideology, and it's an ideology that had lots, you know, in and, and drawing attention to this, I feel like John McCain or Bob Dole or something, like you, you've, in ingrates you don't understand the sacrifices that were made. But in fact, <laughs> there's, there's something to that. You're, you're both, I think, have certain utopian affinities where you think devolve, decentralize, persuade smaller groups of people. But, you know, it's it's a big economy, it's a big society. To, to get change that registers meaningfully, there needs to be a shared commitment of resources, and I don't, it's hard for me to see from either of your visions how that occurs.
1: I, mean, I always like the line that the, the apollo moon landing was the greatest historical achievement of soviet communism um i mean they never would have done it if it hadn't been for the russians i mean that's that's true and and you know the soviet union was actually i'd only learned about this fairly recently at all sorts of Crazy, insane, huge ideas. They had to cancel and it collapsed. They were going to shoot hundreds of solar powered satellites into space to beam energy down to Earth. And, you know, those guys actually did think big and they came out of a tradition of thinking big and they did so in, in ways that were insane and disastrous, but um, they also did so in, 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 you know, ways that were kind of interesting. Um, most of them didn't work, but um, Nonetheless, they had that impulse, and in a way, there was just an imitation of that. Um, the moment the Soviet threat died, they said, okay, hell with that stuff, and, you know, sort of went, went on to, to, to technologies of social control, um, ironically enough. But, um, but nonetheless, um, I think that the answer to the question is, I am not actually saying that small anarchist affinity groups are the only you know, organization that could possibly work. I mean, I don't believe in national purposes. I don't really believe in nations. I don't think nation states are a particularly good um, uh, unit of organization for doing large projects, but I'm not against large projects. I mean, some things like a space program is gonna have to be done on a really big scale by a bunch of people who are united by, by a vision. Um, I mean, what I look forward to is a social order where people are sufficiently guaranteed know are sufficiently secure in their basic needs that they can sort of affiliate with each other around those things which they think are of larger value you know and those things could be anything from you know the fact that they're like chess obsessives to like some religion to the fact that, that, that they want to go to Mars. And I think there's a, a sufficient number of people on Earth who would, if given that like life security, organize themselves together because they want to go to Mars and you know, they could like wrangle enough resources to do it. Um, but I mean, it's, a, it's that principle of freedom. But you have to guarantee that people aren't, you know, debt slaves and they aren't running around desperately trying to like survive. Uh, before you're going to be, you know, they're going to be free to form those voluntary associations on that scale to do that kind of thing. You know, just to, again,
2: uh, uh, there's always this question, how much is it these structures, how much is it all these things in our society? Look, mm-hmm. you know, so I think there's like this interesting question that's been raised, like what went wrong in the 70s? Since we mm-hmm. both agree this is the decade when things seem to break, so I'll give a non-structural explanation for what went wrong, what went mm-hmm. wrong in the 1970s. The U.S. ran out of oil. So it's, you know, the, the early <laughs> warning sign was in 1970, when the Texas Railroad Commission, which was able to set global oil prices by um, giving quotas on how much oil people can ship on Texas railroads. It was the OPEC of the 50s and 60s. In 19, it was 1971, it announced there was no quota anymore. And then within two years, you had an oil shock. And then, um, and then we had all kinds of crazy financial manipulations, mm-hmm. and, um, and we had a series of oil shocks in the 70s and the sort of the basic uh, the basic uh, non-structural explanation if i had to give a single causal one would be we haven't recovered from the oil shocks of the 70s and there was a way in which a cornucopian uh, economy in which there were the most the one of the most fundamental resources namely energy was unlimited in the 50s and 60s all of a sudden became limited and that um, that changed you know all
1: these dynamics in in, in really powerful ways but taking the technology question, I mean, why didn't we come up with something else? I mean, well, but, they didn't,
2: it, it, but nothing had, nothing had, nothing, nothing actually changed structurally. It was just, right. it was just, you, um, you had had this shock, and people, we should have, we should have worked on it harder. We should still be working on it harder, uh, and you have, yeah, you have questions why that didn't. Why that didn't happen? But yeah, because know, it's, I mean,
1: like, it's, it's as an explanation for what went wrong in the 70s. I mean, is the but, question but that we is, ran out of oil or that for the first time when we started running out of something, we no longer had the structures that could create an innovation that would create an alternative yeah, to it quickly? C- c-
2: certainly, again, my, my my cut on this would be that you'd have very important questions why nuclear power got uh, shut down in the 70s at the same time, which I think was much more something the left shut down than the right. And this was. This was seen as the default post, uh, post-carbon fuel. Maybe it was too dangerous, maybe it was always weaponizable. We people in
1: Japan, yeah. Um,
2: well, it's, <laughs> if you believe climate change is the most serious problem in the world, um, it's that what happened in Japan seems like not that big a deal relative to the consequences that people tell us will happen from climate change. Mm. So, uh, so I, always, I, always, I always do think and, and of course, uh, one of the reasons it happened in Japan was we haven't modernized the plants in 50 or 60 years.
4: Every advance in technology has also proven a weapon against you. Every single one, from stem cells, atomic energy, um, immune system, it's already projected to be weaponized. Mm-hmm. So that's a natural dialectic And all this wonderful invention. It isn't just a systems analysis. And the other problem, which was discovered fairly recently, um, but also has its long history, but also did that retardation thing that you seem to think is only a systems problem. We discovered that every time we create more technology, we create a pollution stream. A pollution stream that actually becomes its own negative force. Now I wanted to say one thing about this Mars. It's been built all night long. Just to give you a personal note, my brother actually wrote the algorithm that allowed the Mars exploration. So I've been very, very close to NASA. Love it. But I noticed something about the fascination with Mars. How many people do you think will go there out of the seven or 20 billion people who will be left on a polluted world? And what kind of nature will they find there that they cannot destroy? That's my question.
0: Uh, On that cheery note. I'll take that up. I'll take that up. Wait a minute. I think that's important
1: because I think that, that, that you know, that sort of logic, it's superficially, you know, hard to argue with, but, but it's, you know, anything you come up with can be weaponized. Uh, but you know everything that already exists can be weaponized too. That's not really a reason not to change anything. you know any social change like might actually be used to hurt people or, or, or result in pe- hurting people. I mean you know what it sounds like is you're giving a prescription of utter conservativism in everything in a society which is like really radically imperfect. Huh. I'm, I'm just saying that that what you present to me is, is, doesn't seem very dialectical, it just seems to be saying that, like, you know, everything has its downside, like, yeah, (laughs) everything could be weaponized, yeah, everything's gonna create pollution, but I mean, I think that, that, this is, this is my, my, all right, I, I, one of the more compelling things that I've read about nature and technology was by a physicist named Smolin, uh, made a great impression on me, um, saying well, you know, we have this, I, you know, people think there's a technological fix to everything and they're crazy. And there's also people just say like, well, let's leave nature alone, everything will be fine, you know, we just need, technology is bad. And and this opposition between technology and nature is itself a construct which doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, and um, and lies at the basis of a lot of those prescriptions. He said, all right, well, global warming is obviously man-made. You know, the skeptics say, no, it isn't. It just happens naturally. You know, every now and then the nation, planet heats up, it cools down. That, that is true, but that's not what's happening now. Everybody you know, who that, with any common sense knows that. But he pointed out, you know, on the other hand, like, say we actually do get through this and survive, um, there, we are going to hit a point where the planet does like heat up or uh, cool down naturally if, if you're la- given enough time and it's going to be just as destructive and devastating as if it happened you know because we made it and we're gonna have to like actually come up with a technological solution to like keep ourselves alive in that case by intervening in nature nature isn't all that great not all the time I mean you know could well, shrug us off all of its own accord I, I don't think either of us is uh, sort of sort of panglossian
2: about technology as the as the, you know, simple cure for all, all of our problems, my, my, I have more sort of this negative intuition, which is that without technology, a lot, none of these problems will get cured. And so, yeah. and, and that's sort of, that's something I have a very strong view on. I agree um, with you strongly um, and then there on are, that too. Yeah. And then there are sort of a lot of things, and then, you know, it's still, you have all these questions, is it good, is it bad technology, is it get weaponized or not, or how does it get used? Those are real questions people should, um, need to figure out, but, but uh, I, I think with seven billion people on this planet, we can't go back to some sort of Neolithic past with, which worked with 10 million. Just, we can't go back. We, it, we've gone too far
0: and we have to go further. We have gone too far, that's right. <laughs> Peter, David, thank you very much.